This podcast is brought to you by Shout Engine. In less than five minutes, you can start your own podcast for free with ShoutEngine.com. Universe's live coverage of SEMA 2016 is proudly brought to you by Forza Horizon 3 for the Xbox One and Windows PCs. Get yourself a copy of Forza Horizon 3 at xbox.com on Xbox Live for your favorite retail. Live from SEMA 2016 in the Magnaflow booth once again, it is the Hooniverse podcast. And this week we've got our guest Pete Brock with us, the legend. Uh, I'm sure many of you know who they are. I, first, before we get into that, I have to thank our uh, gracious sponsors, Magnaflow, for having us in their booth and uh, giving us the space to, uh, to do all these interviews, and Forza Motorsport for providing the racing rigs out there and also paying the, uh, paying the bills for us to get out here and, and do all this recording with all these nice people. Great. And, uh, yeah, try out the new game, Forza Horizon 3. It's out now for Xbox One, and uh, it's fantastic. I've spent so much time. Like, when I'm done at the end of the night, you know, work you know around about 10 o'clock yeah i spend the next hour just playing forza and then really? they sent out have you seen the uh, fanatec wheels i have not seen the latest version oh yeah it's disturbingly close to photorealistic now i understand it is yeah uh, we've got them written we got them set up on the rigs out back oh uh, do they okay. fanatec sent us um wheel and pedal boxes yep and uh they're better than in most cars i've driven amazing it's full pneumatic setup on the pedals yep. and yeah dampers on them to make sure that they react properly force feedback in the wheels uh full-size wheel not like a little mini video yes, game yeah size real wheel. size yep yeah the i think the only better paddle shifters i've ever touched were the pdks and the mclarens god i'm so far behind on all that good game stuff but the, it's getting so close to reality now yeah i think that you could probably sit down in most of them and be pretty comfortable really yeah it's right it's getting pretty crazy. And then yeah. we get the whole virtual reality thing, too, which I played with a little bit. And you like, you look behind you, and like they're the back seats. It, really? Yeah. It's it's getting Well, the cars are so beautiful. I mean, they really get the cars down, and then you've got all the different views on it in the car, you know, off the car. And yeah. It's fabulous. I always like, you see, the funny thing is, is people put up the view where they go in the dashboard. Yeah. And, like, if you've got a racing wheel, then you have a wheel on the screen. I'm like, that's weirdly redundant. Yeah. I just like yeah. the over-the-hood view. Just yes. so it's like I'm actually in it. Uh, right. It's, exactly. It's silly, but we can do things like make 50-foot jumps just because it's there. Yeah. You know? No good reason, really. I, I, I jumped in a Ventador like 150 feet through the air. And she's like, eh, well, you know. Fabulous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. But then, you know, that's the Horizon is kind of the, um, it's more playground type game where you can just right. do whatever you want. And then I get the for- regular Forza series, which is hardcore racing. So right. it's a lot cool. of fun. Excellent. But, um, so... Well, your name is pretty storied in this business, so um, I want to jump into a conversation we were having yesterday when the uh, the Vicious Mustang was being unveiled, and I was talking to you about the RTR Mustangs that had the that were having the cantilevered suspension. Yes, 
and you just made a comment to me that was off the cuff that I, it kind of blew my mind. And you were saying when you guys were doing the initial development on the Mustang, yeah, right. you guys had an IRS set up. Right. It, it uh, had been designed at Ford uh, to put in the uh, the GT350s when we were working at Shelby's. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a very interesting story of how the whole performance thing came out of the Mustang because uh, it was initially sort of perceived as a secretary's car. Right. And then... Well, it uh, came off the Falcon and then they yeah, were like, we'll right. make a little sporty car. Yeah, for, a little yeah. six-cylinder engine and stuff on it. But then... Uh, uh, Lee Icoca called Shelby and he said, you know, uh, we'd like to, you know, turn this into a really performance car. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we do? And uh, so Carol gave him some ideas on it. So anyway, it's interesting. Ford went back to the SECA and said they wanted to uh, homologate the car for uh, for sports car racing. Mm-hmm. And the SECA turned them down. So Icoca calls back to Shelby and says, hey, wh- what's going on? They just turned us down. So Shelby picks up the phone and calls John Bishop, the SECA, and says, how come you didn't accept the car? And they says, well, you know, it's got four seats. It's not a real sports car. And Carol says, well, how about I just take the seats out of the back end and we build the cars back here and we call them GT350s? And that's the way the whole performance program came about, just in that phone call there from Iacocca and Shelby. All right. It turned out to be the biggest program Carol ever had. Yeah, I mean, it's just casual. Like, it, it, I, it's interesting in that these things are, in retrospect, they turn out to be a big deal. But when you're doing them, it's just your everyday yeah, right, job. Right. You know, it's just like you know, people. Yeah, yeah at a much very less level, people come back to us and go, "Well, remember that one thing that you said three years ago?" And be like, yeah. "No, I, I really don't. I'm sorry." Well, the other thing that was really interesting in it because we had to get the first car ready for a Green Valley race in Texas. Um, so it really had to be done very quickly. So I had a bunch of styling stuff that I wanted to do on the car, and, and uh, we just didn't have time to do the tooling on. So I designed a really pretty front end for the car that was uh, had more of opening at the bottom, so we could run a crossflow radiator at the bottom, the oil cooler, and all that stuff. But there wasn't time, so we just took that front valence and we just chopped out the bottom of it. And hence the iconic. You know, and that that became the the. the the, the trick front end for the GT350 yeah. because it was very functional, so we didn't go back and fix it or anything. So and there was, was yeah, understanding of aerodynamics at that point was pretty rudimentary. Very, very rude, yeah. And the other thing was is that uh, so we, we went back with management and uh, because of time and, and expense on tooling this new front end that I designed, they pretty much said, well, you know, it costs too much money to do it, too much time or whatever. And they said, but we still have to make the car look racy. What do we do? And I'd been a great fan when I was in high school of Briggs Cunningham, who had gone over to Europe, mm-hmm. you know, with the, with the Corvettes and ran the two blue stripes over the cars. Right. So my high school ride had two blue stripes over the top of the car. You know, it was pretty radical for that time. So the most iconic look for the Mustang came from the Corvette. Came from that's gonna Briggs hurt, Cunningham. That's going to hurt a lot of people's so. feelings. <laughs> it really is. So I suggested to him, I said, well, you know, you can spend a lot of money tooling this new truck trick front end and make the car look good, or we can run two stripes over the top, which signifies American racing, and that'll only cost a paint job. And they thought that was a really weird idea, that it would have two stripes over the top of it. But they looked at the cost value, and they said, okay, we'll do it. And, of course, we did it, and that became 
the whole look for the GT350, and it's transferred over wow. every performance car now has stripes over yeah, the top. I, I mean, it's simply one of the most iconic designs yeah. ever. And I think it really came back into its own when the, when the Viper started doing it. Absolutely. That's when, yeah. you know, yeah. when, when that whole program started up, I mean, that was the spiritual success well, that of the was, Cobra, obviously. What was really slick with that is, is that, uh, you know, the whole inspiration for the Viper was the Daytona Cobra Coupe. Yeah. And it was great because Tom Gale, who was at, at head of... Uh, design at that time for Chrysler uh, came out to California uh, to meet with me and he says, you know we're going to introduce the car at Pebble Beach and he said uh, we have kind of a marketing program set up that we, that I'd like to pass it by and I said, you know, here's Tom Gale coming to me, he says we want to paint the car blue with white stripes on it and he says, that's like the Daytonis. He said, yeah. would that be okay? I mean, what a classy guy to, yeah, come, that's, to actually He had come no out need to it. actually pass yeah, he, that there by There was you, no but. need that he had to do that. But, you know, he came out. He was so nice. And uh, so that's the way uh, the Vipers ended up, that blue and white uh, livery. You've had your hands on probably, I, I could say, the most iconic Ford performance products that have ever come out of, the, out of the company. Well, I've had a chance to work on some really, really great stuff, you know, and it's mainly the people that I've had to work with that, that created them. Because, you know, you can do a neat project, but if you haven't got the rest of the team behind you yeah. to make the thing work, uh, it basically fails, it doesn't get any press, and, and it goes away. And there's been hundreds and hundreds of programs like that that are almost there but never make it. But if you've got that whole team behind you that makes it function as well as look good, then you have a winner. Yeah, I mean, if you got that one weak link in the chain, yeah. I mean, it just goes without saying that yeah. if you did that and you didn't have a killer marketing part, department at right. the time, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. Well, I or, think that was where uh, Shelby was really the master. He was had, he was the Pied Piper that could collect oh, yeah. all these people that put the right things together. We had, you know, the Carroll was just such a great salesman. He was great with the press and everything. Well, he was just that big yeah. Texas personality. Yeah. yeah, it was huge. He was very charismatic. And then Within the shop, you know, we had guys like Phil Remington, you know, Bruce Burness. And, and, I mean, the, the, the crew that we had in there, Dodd Bos, Boscoff, and I mean, that built these cars were the best race mechanics in Southern California. And uh, so it was uh, amazing that you could take this uh, group of guys that had been building hot rods most of the time and uh, turn them into top road racers. Proper yeah. engineers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's. Um but we all start somewhere like that, you know. Yeah. It's we don't go full fledged into the into what we eventually become in our careers. We all start, you know, tinkering with something, or yeah. it doesn't matter what your job is. You got to, you know. Well, what's so interesting about that particular era is, is, as most people know, you know, Ford tried to buy Ferrari and they got turned down, and yep. so they decided to make their own car. So this was exactly the same time that we were doing the Daytona Cobra. Cobra Coupe. So Ford wasn't interested in helping Carroll on the on the Daytona because they were putting all of their effort into the GT40. Mm-hmm. So it was Goodyear primarily that helped us build the Daytona Coupes. So when we went out and started racing the Daytona Coupes, we weren't just racing against Jaguar, and we weren't just racing against Ferrari, and we weren't just racing against Aston Martin. We were also racing against Ford and their GT40s. And so we were beating them to yeah. the Daytona Coupes that first year. We smoked them all. So finally, Ford looked at the whole program and said, you know, maybe we're doing this wrong. The guys that are making this happen are at Shelby's. So they took the program away from John Wire in England and gave it to Carroll Shelby for 1965. But part of the program was no more Cobras. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the end of the Cobra program. But we were know, if success- they had never ended, though, I don't know that they would be as special as they are now. Yeah, right. You know, yep. There has to be a 
things if there is no finiteness to things yeah they they cease to be important you yeah. know it's it's when you know things are going to disappear it's just like people trying to snatch up the last of the vipers right now yeah because they know it's the end yep period boy these late ones are really beautiful i'll tell you they've done the, a great job on them. the acr is it's a race car yep. they, there is nothing there is no to you know yeah. argument about it that car is a race car that they will sell you to any yahoo that can have a driver's license. i mean all the aesthetics they've kept refining that refining it and refining it and i mean it is really it's a beautiful beautiful form on that yeah, car now it is i mean so we have to admire it it's it's unfortunate that it's the last hurrah but it's for whatever reason chrysler just could never get the marketing and the pricing right on that yep. thing you know i think that the if they had been able to offer it with the hemi they may have been able to get a little more traction in these later yep. years um well i think they were just behind chevrolet on the engineering on it because yeah. when when Chevy really started to get in with that program and designing everything that they really wanted to do. I mean, that's a pretty fine automobile. It just well, yeah, I, I've I've got a C6 at, at home. Yeah, you know. Is, oh, you have a C6? Yeah, do you? Yeah, it's um, yeah. it's very capable. I mean, it's right now it that car you know far outpaces my ability as a driver. I am. I, I see many, many times I am perfectly content being a mid-pack guy right now. I'm not a pro driver. Yeah. But I, I can not embarrass myself on a road course, and I'm fine yeah. with that. That's that's okay with me. I'm not a pro driver. Well, that's such a cool car. I mean, and they just keep getting better and better and better with all the, you know, forged aluminum pieces. And, I mean, the whole engineering on the, the new Chevys is just really pretty impressive. I'm very impressed with their engineering team, yeah. but Ford's doing some incredible things, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. the, have you had a chance to try the uh, new GT350s? Yes, I have. And, and God, what a lovely sound on that car. You yeah, know. that flat I mean, plane. That, that is, you know, Ford C7 fighter, and it, it it's a great car. Yeah. You know, really, I, really. I don't, know, I don't know that I put them quite in the same <coughs> vein. I mean, that especially that Grand Sport is, I mean... It's lapping faster than 911 GT3s. Yeah. So, but there's a price delta between those oh, things, yeah. too. You know, right. They're, you know, $30,000 price difference. So, so. But, but you know, the gt got the new, new GT40, you know, yeah. the Ford GT, and I think that we'll probably see a mid-engine Corvette come out, probably in limited production. But I, I see the Corvette stay in front engine for a long time. I mean, it's such a traditional package. I, so every indication that I have come across amongst so many people I talk to is that the mid-engine bed is absolutely happening mm-hmm. for, as a 2018 model. Yep. Uh, possibly 2018, 2019 Right, some in there, yep. Probably the very, very end of 2018. Um, and uh, that's going to be, the initial run's going to be mid-mount, and then they're going to keep the front for a little bit, but after that they'll transition the line to full mid-engine on everything. I think so. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's otherwise they got to keep two lines going, and well, that's what they're doing with the, with the, with the Mustang GT3. They are, although yeah. I think they sell a few more Mustangs than they do Corvettes. Yeah, but I, that's why I'd say <laughs> they would probably do it with the Corvette. Yeah, you know, I mean that that front engine Corvette is just such a well, you know, suited piece for the general public, and a mid-engine car. I don't know, you know, it can't do all those things. You can't put the set of golf clubs in it and all those other compromises they yeah. they want to do, you know. you got to get real smart with yeah. packaging if you want to do and, that. And uh, if you start doing that, you, you just destroy the whole concept of what the mid-engine car should be. So I I see that they're, it's going to be the 
it's going to be their, their the Ford GT type uh, thing, you know. Yeah, a few hundred I, per but, year. I mean, as you well know, you get to a certain point. I mean, and then they're there with power. I mean, you're talking six fifty, seven hundred horsepower, and they're like, yeah, we don't have any adhesion. There's just no grip left with, right. the, with the engine up front. So, yeah. it's the uh, physics. Physics is the real bitch, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of interesting things going on. And, like, I've got a little, my daily is a little Ford Fiesta hatch, ST hatchback, and that thing yeah. is, that thing's stupid capable. I mean, aren't they amazing? Yeah. It's, they're all cranking out incredible work right now. I mean, we all saw the decline of the American car market, you yeah. know, in the, in the 70s and the 80s, and up until the early 90s, and then things have really started coming back in terms of quality, and now we're, Back up we're there. Ter- in terms of reliability, and reliability, we're back up with the Japanese. Yeah. You know, and then performance, we're matching everything Europe does now. No question. So, well, the thing I like to see, for example, in the new C7 Corvette. I mean, that interior fit and everything. And there's yeah. none of that plasticky look that you know was the early Corvettes. They are beautifully, beautifully finished. Yeah, inside, there's nothing you know? wrong with it now. Yeah, there's no reason to complain at that price point yeah. on that interior. <laughs> but you know they. They all have to step it up. I mean, the global competition, the fact that there's so much consolidation between models on between continents now. Yeah. They they had no choice but to you know to do it that to do way. It. Yeah. And I'm glad because it's all better for it. Right. So when we're not talking just the American stuff, what else is piquing your interest? Is there anything from Italy or anything from Germany that, that looks really cool to you these days? I think the most exciting car that I've seen lately mm-hmm. is the new Elio. Which one? The Elio. Oh, the Elio? Paul Elio has got the vision yeah. and the courage to go ahead and put this little three-wheeler on the market. I mean, they've designed all their own new engine. They've gone directly to Roush. Some of the top people in Detroit re-engineered that thing. It's a real solid, fine little piece of equipment. I have not seen it in person. It's funny. I've been around um, some of the people that set up all the financial backing on that. Yes, uh-huh. And they, I've talked to them at length about a few different things for one of my other ventures. And um, so I've caught a little bit of what's going on with it, and it's it's an interesting, it's a really interesting project. I'm just curious how they're what they're you know well, go to market. Have, plan have a chance. It's over in the North Hall. Go over and take a look okay. at it. But it's a really a slick looking piece. Uh, you can fit two really large people. I mean, the whole thing has got no frontal area on it. Um, it's got you know full cage, all the safety stuff that you want to think of in a you know full size automobile. So it's not a not a, a trike or something like that. Uh, I mean, it's it's a real automobile. It just right. happens to be three wheels, and engineered top guys out of uh, out of Detroit doing it, like Rice Engineering and stuff. So uh, I'm pretty impressed, and it's the most exciting idea I've seen in new cars lately. And seventy three hundred dollars. I mean, come on. Yeah, that's that's. I'm curious to see because people in the U.S. have just pushed back on a lot of that stuff. But there's a lot of markets outside the U.S. where that thing could really, really take off, too. The thing is, is you go up there and, I mean, they've got uh, deposits uh, to hold numbers on those things. I mean, you can, there's two levels of deposit. You can put down 100 bucks, you know, and, and uh, sign in on or a 1000 and get your chassis number on the thing. But they're up over 60,000 orders for those things already. And they're a year and a half away from production. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's, it's that's no small feat. It's, oh no, it's incredible what they've done. It's uh, it'll be really interesting to see. I mean, I'm I'm sure I'll probably get a chance to drive one. You know, yep. Once they're getting pretty close to production, but yeah, I mean, for that price point, I, I there's nothing there's nothing in the modern age that matches. Well, if you go down to the LA Auto Show, they'll have the first one with the brand new engine. You know, everything up to now has sort of been uh, 
uh, pre-production protos they've used the Geo Metro engine and it's been a kind of a rattly little car right. but the new one is really tight well finished and designed around the engine all their own suspension of stuff. all the cars for you to get excited about I didn't think the Ilya would be the one that I'm do telling it for you. you I've you know I've always been a, a proponent of uh, making a, an inexpensive car for for that level of the market because I've is when I was at GM, I, I had an idea about doing this student's car that would sell for, you know, with their economy of scale, we could have done a beautiful little car for a thousand bucks at that time, you know, which is, you know, about six thousand bucks now. Right. But uh, I've always felt that there's been a huge market availability for that. And the fact that uh, you can make this as a computer, I mean, 72% of the cars that are on the road are all driven by, you know, one person. Right. So all these people that are out there commuting, just think of, you know, what that potential is to get people. I mean, you got more highway space, less gas, and everybody ends up making money on the thing. And I'd imagine there's probably an electric Elio in the future. Oh, probably some that place down the line, but uh, nobody is approaching it as sophisticated as, as uh, Paul Elio. You're really opening my eyes on this because I thought it was a much more humble project. Than no, that. no, it's a it's a seriously engineered project, and I think. I get the same feeling uh, when you talk to people that are around it and have, and have ordered and whatever. It's that same sort of exciting feeling that people had in the early uh, 1950s and late late 49 when people came over with an MGTCs and TDs. Mm-hmm. And there was this all the early adopters of the people the sports cars, and they sort of grouped around this car and had a lot of fun with it. And so it, it, it's a car that that. Uh, is going to be a real fun car, and it's yet something you can use every day, it's sort of like those early sports cars were, except this has all of the modern accoutrements. And I mean, it's got roll up and down windows and stereo and heater and air conditioning, you know. It's what you expect in a regular yeah, car. Yeah, for a regular car today. So, uh, and here you've got the sporty, fun little car that uh, I think is going to do pretty well on the market. It's going to surprise a lot of people. Yeah, I think, and the interesting thing would be is I think the electric one will probably come about pretty yeah. quick because, as you well know, the engineering on that's a lot easier than it is on an ICE engine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. You really did open my eyes on that because I thought I thought that was a much more humble project than it oh, was. Oh, no, so. I mean, they've got uh, uh, a variable cams in, in the engine, you know. Huh. Uh, I think, they, I mean... They're getting over 80 miles per gallon with the thing right now, and they know they can get more with even more tuning and stuff on it. So, I mean, you can offer a car out there that gets 80 miles per gallon on your commuter. That opens a lot of eyes for people. And, you know, our, our prices on fuel are down right now, but everything runs in cycle. When yes, we're back does. up for five or six bucks a gallon, I'll tell you, that's going to be the answer. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's funny. We come to these shows, and... You know, you get some people... That, I never know what, which way the wind's going to blow. Some people just go, ah, fuel economy doesn't matter, blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, well, I mean, wouldn't it be nice to waste less and spend less? Sure. Regardless of what your political stance is on things. Yeah. It's, I, I, I prefer to not be wasteful. Of <laughs> course know? not. Who you wants know? to be, you know? Uh, plenty of people. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, you've seen you've seen the rolling coal trucks. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's just like, yeah, we're going to dump raw diesel into the exhaust. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. You know? But... Uh, so I would be remiss if I did not ask. Do you know why in the original Mustang the IRS was axed was axed on that? Because I, I know I will get people asking me about why that. It's very interesting because uh, when uh, the project was designed back at Ford, uh, 
uh, one of the guys that worked on it was uh, Bob Nixted, who also designed the suspension for uh, the uh, the four GTs at that time, and he did the Mark II Cobras. So it was one of the very first suspensions that had ever been designed uh, completely on a computer. So they, they made up all the prototype pieces and everything, and they costed it out. And it wasn't the cost of, of the, uh, the option to put, it was the modifications and time to put it in the car that actually put it away. So it was the labor that killed it. Uh, so it was within budget as far as materials went. Yes, it was. It was within budget on that. It wasn't in terms of labor and adapting it to put it in because, of course, the car was all designed for conventional, you know, leaf springs. And all right. that all that had to be taken out and uh, uh, a different mount for the diff and, you know, all the different pieces on it. So that was the thing that killed it. But otherwise, they all would have been in the, in the Shelby GT350s. Wow. That, so, is, that is an interesting yeah. alternate future yeah. if that had happened. And it's interesting uh, that uh, uh, there's some guys that uh, worked on the original uh, Mustangs uh, back at Shelby's, and they've gone ahead and they've built a couple of Mustangs with that suspension system in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've now had them out on the track and, and uh, had a chance to compare. So they, they all came back and said, you know, what if on this Mustang? So. Mm-hmm. We have all the trick front end I did on it, the different rear window and the independent rear suspension and the better brakes and all the cool stuff on it. And uh, they're pretty serious about making those in limited production as well. So there's a bunch of different projects out there on the 64, 65 Fastback Mustang, some beautiful ones. I mean, there's some awesome cars here on it. But uh, this one being uh, sort of originated with the original Venice crew is, is pretty interesting. It's uh, it's. It- it's funny to me that like there was all this upheaval over the IRS going to an, you know, going on the Mustang. Yeah, and it was like oh no, saw that because you know the Camaro did it years ago. You know, yeah, right. when the fifth gen came out and you know people were up in arms and like oh no, it has to be a solid axle because it's drag racing. Yeah, well, and people did it with the Mustang. It's like well, yeah, now it's a lot easier to road race it too, and sure. hasn't turned out to be a problem at all, really. Not at all. You know, I mean, people. There's such resistance to change because they're unfamiliar with something, and it's basically they don't want to feel stupid, so they want to go with something they know. Yeah. But once you can educate people and show them something works better, and there's really distinct advantages to it, then everybody gloms onto it right away. I find it funny the guys that are still running carbs. You yeah. Know, for anything other than historical purposes. Yeah. It's yeah. just like there's a you couldn't get people <laughs> off of carbs fast enough. You know? I know. Well, now the fact that you can you know take your computer basically in the car and plug it in and tune it on the road the way you like it. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, well, it's beautiful too because the nice thing is, is now if something's going wrong in the drivetrain, it tells you approximately where you need to start looking and see what's going on. Exactly. You know, exactly. You're, you're like, oh, we're running rich, or yep. you know, when the knock sensor's going off, well, that means we're you know we're, we probably either need to pull some timing or yep. we need to put some better fuel in the damn thing. You know, yeah. It's uh, I can't imagine going back to a time when I was working on cars where I did not have that because well it, it seemed it seemed simple because nobody really understood the electronic era as well as the kids do now today yeah now they look they're not as mechanical but boy they can do all the electronic stuff really easy so it's fairly easy for a guy in this era to uh, electronically you know do all the tuning on it where he may not know how to change all of you know the pump jets or the no, um, I don't know how to. I don't yeah. know how to tune carb. I do yeah. not at all. Yeah. But I mean, you can sit me down with HP tuners, and I can I can take care of a fuel trim on, on a sure. car. 
And the neat thing is that you can see it up on the screen exactly what it's doing. Well, that's know? the big thing is that we can record all that data and yeah. pull it back and know exactly what we're doing. It's beautiful. Yep. It's, oh, it's, it's really slick, you know. It's, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, so the Ilio, any, is there any, like, the exotics or anything that are like, okay, I'd like a crack at that, or? Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of supercars out there, and there's some incredibly engineering on it, but, uh, I think it's, a, I don't think we've ever seen a time like this. It's, we're in an era that you know this stuff's coming in from all over the world in different places, and it, you know, and every two weeks or so, there's another exotic supercar that'll run over 220 miles per hour. You know, and the, the fact is, like, it's all for bragging rights because even with it, there aren't even enough tracks out there where you can go out and use that no. kind of stuff anymore. Uh, yeah. So, uh, friends of mine have had, you know, the, I think the biggest thing lately has been the. Uh, the like the Ferrari 488 and then yep. the McLarens, yep. they're so fast that oh, awesome. you just can't you yep. can't do anything with them. They're too fast. Like yep. the 675 long tail, oh, you know, amazing. Zach was telling me it was just it was like, yeah, you just can't even use it. It's too much. Yeah. No. So again, that sort of gets back where the appeal is on the on the Helio for me is, is that you know if you look at at uh, your participation at, at big motorsports events. If you go to a, a race today, everybody's driving in their sedan or something. They're not going in there in their trick GT or whatever it is. Right. I mean, they want to get there as comfortably and smoothly as they can without risk of anything. So that whole enthusiast market of where people used to drive their sports cars to the races and they're all a, a big sort of social group, that's all gone away. I think that we will see that return with cars like the Helio because it's a whole new market of people that can do something very inexpensively. They can have their, you know, day-to-day car, but right. you, that car will will end up being raced. You watch. I mean, you have two, oh, two guys. That, any boy, car. I, I, everybody's going to hop that thing up, and they're going to be some races. The interesting thing I find out with three-wheelers is if you look back in history— the fastest way around Brands Hatch for a long, long time was the Morgan three-wheeler. Yeah. It, it beat all the four-wheelers for a long, long time, you know. Which is amazing after having been yeah. in Morgan. So these carts aren't slow. I mean, you put the horsepower down and tune them properly, they can be pretty damn fast, you know. Yeah. So right now they're working on mileage and, and, and making the car real attractive from the standpoint of commuter and a low price. But, you know... The base price is seventy three hundred dollars. You know, you put another two, three thousand in that car, now it's going to be a rocket ship. Hell, I've paid more than that for a supercharger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, enough about the past and about the stuff we're. You show when I'm. You know, when I met you yesterday, you started showing me your current project. Yeah. Which are these race trailers that are gorgeous? I mean, the best I can explain it is kind of. You know, think of think of just a gorgeous aluminum camper, and kind of extrapolate that and any aerodynamics out to a race trailer. Well, the main thing was just you know, if you look at it, towing a trailer, and I've towed trailers for thousands of miles, all types of race cars with our team and stuff. Well, they're like, and bricks. we're still building the same trailer today that guys started building in 1920. They're yeah. all big boxes, 
And in the trailer market, that's the smart way to do it because, you know, it's your payload and you've got square boxes and you want to fill it up as high as you can and whatever. But when you put an automobile into a square box, there is so much wasted space in there that it's absolutely stupid to try to tow it down the road because all that extra space is taking up room and pushing a lot of wind. So the average trailer right now, when you take it up, when you get it up to about 50 mile an hour, it's pushing so much wind that your mileage falls off if you try to go much over 50. Mm -hmm. So with designing the AeroVault, which we designed primarily, I designed it to fit my Daytona Cobra Coupe. You know, I wanted to kind of make it like a sheath for a sword, you know, so you just put your weapon right. inside and make it as narrow and low as frontal area as possible. So we've cut, you know, 30% of the frontal area off the trailer and then rounded everything off so it's not affected by side winds. It's not, you know, when you go past the big 40-footer stuff, it doesn't blow you off two feet on the side of the road. Well, it's got a fin running right down the center of it. Well, that's, that's an interesting uh, thing on it, Chris, because that fin that you see on the top of it looks kind of like a styling thing or, you know, an aerodynamic thing, but really all it is is it's a triangular structure that runs down the middle of the roof, so it's the exoskeleton it's on the outside. It's the framework for the trailer is on the outside, which gives more room on the inside because we've cut down the frontal area. Okay. It's all smooth on the inside, and the structure's on the outside. And it's giving you stability yes. at the same time. The big channel down the side here in the aluminum. Yep. And these three fins here make the roof struts. Then you put that all together, you've got this semi-monocoque shape. I'm sure it probably, helps super rigid. it probably helps in construction, too. It probably oh, makes it a lot absolutely. easier. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, that's that's an interesting way. You really yeah. did kill two birds with one stone on that. And then what's the other important thing about it is you'll notice that the front end is completely round. Mm -hmm. You know, so the important thing is what you're doing is trying to take the turbulent air off the vehicle that you're towing with because all vehicles are different, whatever they right. are. But you're trying to capture that turbulence and put it back around the trailer and minimize and then carry the turbulence it backwards all the way off back. of that. Right. Let the other guy deal with the turbulent so, air. So what we end up doing is we end up stabilizing that rig from the, the towing vehicle to the trailer. Mm -hmm. It's actually more stable going down the road because it's like bump drafting in NASCAR. You get two guys right close together. That air flowing over the two cars is a lot more well, efficient that, than With the external car. structure, too, it's basically then like an arrow. Yes, where it's helping exactly. It to fly straight. Yep. It's, so it's a really, really trick thing. And, and, you know, we started doing them for all these uh, high-end cars, or, you know, Conquer cars, Customs rods, and all that thing. So that's really our market. But And they're getting, all aluminum, right? All aluminum with the exception of the composite fenders and top. Right. So it only weighs 2,400 pounds. Really? Yeah. And it's got, That's uh, light for a trailer that oh, size. Oh, yeah. That's it's 7,000-pound gross. It's got N-rated tires on it, so you can cruise all day long at 85. They're 87-mile-an-hour rated tires on it, highest-rated, speed-rated tires, which is a big problem with most trailers. they got these crappy tires on them. Yeah. You take them out and try to run them fast, they blow the tires And they up. look like they're 17-inch wheels or something like they're that. They're 15s. 15s? Yep, yep. Uh, just a big tire on there. Yep. Yeah, so, that's, I mean... So it's, a, it's an awesome piece, really is. It's, it's a nice trailer. And uh, what do they run? They're about 25,000. Okay. Yeah. So completely within the norm as far as everything. Big I goes. mean, they come with everything. You know, most trailers, everybody in the trailer market is trying to, you know, get the low ball price. So uh, if you want a spare tire, it's this much extra. If you want a winch, and it's this much extra. If you want the extra lights on, it's this much extra. You know, nickel and dime. And, and our thing is complete. You know, about the only thing extra is a GPS system in it. If you want to put it in there, that way, in case the trailer gets stolen or the doors open, it calls your phone immediately. And shows you where the trailer is, yeah. so you can know it. 
you know, whether you park it, you can always look on your phone and you know exactly where it is or where it's moving if somebody tries to steal it. Which is also good, too, if you have employees that you're trying to track shipping. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, or if you've got somebody else driving across country and you want to know where they are or what time they're doing, you can just look on your phone and you know it. Yeah, very, very handy. Yeah. But really cool. And it's looking like, what is, um, what's the tongue weight on something like that? Well, three to 500 pounds, depending on what load you've got on the inside. pretty damn light. So you don't have to run any extra, uh, you know, load levelers or all that kind of stuff that right. you've got. A, no a extra stabilization whatsoever. This thing just hooks up behind. Uh, well, the nice thing about it is you can you sell these big 250 or 350, you know, uh, trucks and put it behind your daily driver SUV. Mm-hmm. So they tow really great. Hell, so it was me, I, if it was me, I might even just attach it to a yeah. decent-sized sedan. Exactly. We've I mean, got, at that tongue weight, you totally could. Yeah, you can. And we've got uh, the best mileage that we've got right now. We've got a customer in Florida that's got a diesel Mercedes SUV. He's getting 22 miles per gallon towing. Yep. I mean, with, with a 2,400-pound trailer with yeah. probably a 3,500-pound car in it. Yep. Yeah, so that's that's our that's our record right now. We get incredible letters from guys. They just can't believe how smooth this thing is on the road. Because you know, if you've towed regular trailers for a while, you know that they're really kind of a hassle in crosswinds and high winds oh, and yeah. stuff like that. Done it. I used to I used to uh, tow a camper every now and then, like a thirty five foot camper that was you know box on wheels, and it's just like yeah, yeah. It'd be a little harrowing. So those this, um, this thing is just goes down the road like an arrow. They're really beautiful. Uh, electric brakes on it, or electric brakes, four wheel all the way around on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's. There's nothing worse than, than so, towing when you don't have yeah. adequate braking. And then all the you know built in tie downs in the inside, and uh, then there are little hooks on the wall and stuff. And we hold everything on the sides of the walls with tarp straps. So there's some channels in the side. And, you know, if you want to take tables and chairs and, you know, your tools or whatever, they all fit in these channels, and they're all just attached to the wall. So everything is super easy to get at and, and uh, really neat. It's it's a really, really nice setup. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if I was in the market for that, that would definitely be something. Hopefully I will be at some point in the future. All right. Hopefully. Cool. i got to get somewhere where I can actually store toys first. I'm living in a little apartment in Redondo Beach. So. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. It'd be a little tough to do that down there. Yeah, I, I got one very small garage that the Corvette barely fits in, and then oh. my and then my Fiesta sits in the uh, the in the you know in the driveway right in front of that. Well, so. this thing's pretty low. A lot of people put them in their in their garages, but um, I think those early. Yeah, I can see uh, that. I mean, it's hard. Front. What is this? I'm looking at it on the front here. Is that it's a Cayenne that it's towing? That's yeah, towing yeah. It. But here's all it, the dimensions on the thing. Yeah. You can see what the. I mean, with it's, it's full just for eighty width eighty inches in between the wheel is on side so you can put a full-size panamera in there or a tesla or anything like that you know uh early camaro mustang or anything like that oh those all i mean if you can fit a tesla model s in there you can fit a lot of things that's a big car yep um but i'm just looking at for just to give people an idea on scale this being towed by a panamera it's maybe what six inches taller than a panamera yeah it's really not that you could yeah if you had an airflow over it there's no frontal area lost yeah if you had a big garage like a long garage you could easily put that in the garage yep it's that's a nice piece of equipment it's a really nice piece of equipment um yeah just dream all right (laughs) someday someday but um is there anything else you want to promote while we're here pete gosh Chris, it's been really fun talking to you on this. You know, to sit down and uh, do a little chatting about cars and what we think about the future, and, and uh, so those are the sort of the new new era things that I see going as uh, aerodynamic trailers and the Elio, 
okay. are uh, sort of the exciting things. I still love all of the traditional Mustangs and Corvettes and stuff that I've worked on all my life, and, and of course all the Datsun 240Zs and 510s. Oh yeah, ran. yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a soft spot for those too. Well, those the are, 510s especially. Oh god, yeah. I mean, they're building 510s today that are just absolute jewels. You Have know? you been over to uh, Adam's place with all his Newman cars? Yes, he has. Yeah. He, he actually owns three of the BRE. Yeah, cars I know he does. That. Yeah. So, he owns two of our BRE roasters with her both championship cars. And, then he, and also, he drives them. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's also got one of the five Trans Am cars that we built. Yeah. So uh, he's got a good BRE collection. Yeah, that's uh, he's, I, the thing I like is that, you know, he's one of the rare guys that's buying them and he's actually driving them. I think yeah. he actually cracked one up at one point and had to yeah. put it back together. But that's what, race, that's what happens to race cars. Well, that's neat. The, the fact that, you know, he just doesn't have them put away and, and wiping them down. He actually gets out and uses them. It's really slick. Yeah, so it's. Um, I, I admire them for that. Yep, it's. Uh, I'm glad that they're getting used and not just sitting somewhere. Oh, cool. It's, uh, well, Pete, I really appreciate you taking Chris, the time. Chris, it's been really fun. Thank you so much for the time. I You're hope. Uh, and um, the AeroVault. Um, what is that? AeroVault.com. AeroVault.com. Yeah, and In- it's A E R O. Yeah, A E R O. Right. Okay, yep. AeroVault.com. Yeah. Once again, I have to thank our gracious host, Magnaflow, here for having us. Absolutely. And uh, the Forza guys for helping get us out here to Vegas, and the Fantech guys for handing us those beautiful wheels. Go over to uh, uh, Xbox.com, get your copy of Forza Horizon 3, or you can order it up on your Xbox or at basically any store that sells video games. They'll have Forza Horizon 3. It's a great game. I enjoyed a great deal. And, uh, Pete, maybe we'll get you on the uh, Forza game out back here when we're done, just yeah, so you I'd, can see. I'd like to do that. Yeah. yeah. It's, cool it's a cool setup. Excellent. All right, Pete. Chris, thank you. you I appreciate thank you. it.